Uh, my name is Travis. I serve as the teaching pastor here, but I'm also a seminary student. I've been a seminary student for way longer than should be allowed. Uh, I am currently on like the 10-year track to finish a three-year degree, uh, but I am down to like my last 12 credit hours. So the end is finally in sight for me, which feels impossible. <laughs> but in order to finish as quickly as I can, uh, I made the mistake of taking like a full course load the same semester that we had our first child. Uh, and so last week, uh, my gracious and wonderful wife watched the baby while I took six exams in two days, uh, which nearly broke me. <laughs> I, I didn't really know what was real afterwards. Um, but one of the classes that I was taking uh, was a, a class called Poets. And this is not, uh, this is not sort of unpacking uh, the romanticists, like we're not walking through Walt Whitman or anything, but we're walking through the portions of the Old Testament that fall under that category of the poetic books. Things like the Proverbs or the book of Job or Ecclesiastes or ultimately the Psalms. For me, I've, I've grown up in church. I've grown up around church. And so the Psalms are a portion of scripture that I'm familiar with from the outside. But it was incredible to have the opportunity to kind of look at it with fresh eyes and learn a little bit more about the context and the background of the Psalms. And maybe you're like me. Maybe you've got church background. And, and so you feel like you know a thing or two about this portion of scripture. Uh, maybe you see people posting quotes from the Psalms on social media, or maybe you're a little bit more old school and you grew up with your grandmother having the plaque with the 23rd Psalm hanging in the kitchen or as the doormat. There's a sense in which we can feel too familiar with this part of the Bible. But it's worth it to just consider what a tremendous thing it is that the largest portion of our Bible is a collection of poetry and songs. The book of Psalms wasn't written all at one time. The oldest psalm is Psalm 90. It's attributed to Moses, which makes it about 3,500 years old. Uh, you also have psalms that are written by David, which puts it at about 2,000 years old. And then psalms that seem to have been written after the exile, which puts it closer to 1,500 years old. The book of Psalms is ancient, it is thousands of years old when you piece it all together. And it's not just a, a singular book. If you've sort of thumbed through that portion of your Bible, you might notice that the one book of Psalms is broken up into five individual books or collections. And this is on purpose. The first five books of the Bible are known as the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. These are the portions of Scripture that Moses wrote. Penta meaning five, Pentateuch. This is a foundational part of the Bible. For the people of Israel, it, it laid the groundwork for everything. This is where God revealed his character. This is where God gave commandments and laws and expectations and ordered his people to live in a certain way. And it was broken up into five books. And then we come to the Psalms. And the Psalms are similarly broken up into five sections. And that's making a point about this part of the Bible. That the book of Psalms has the same level of authority as the law, the same level of authority as the Ten Commandments, that it is just as much God's truth as these foundational legal documents. And that's wild to think about. Because I think for us, we think that God's truth only comes to us as commandments. Do this, don't do this. 
Act this way, don't act this way. Follow this commandment, don't follow this course of action. But, but what Psalms tells us is that God's truth doesn't just come to us through commandments, it comes to us through poetry. God's truth doesn't just come to us through direct orders, it comes to us through art and imagination. And that shouldn't surprise us. The reality is that the, the media, the art we consume, the songs that we listen to, form us in ways that sometimes we're not even conscious of. A great example of this uh, is when I was in high school, it was either my freshman or my sophomore year, I signed up to take Guitar One. I don't even know if they offer this class anymore. Uh, But there's a lady on staff here at the church, Patty Fuller, who taught me for a couple months the basics of guitar. And I kind of taught myself the rest of it. And so when I signed up for Guitar One, it was mostly so that I could boost my GPA. So it's like, man, I, I know all this stuff. I've learned all this stuff. And also, if I get like a free hour in the middle of school to practice guitar, then that's sweet as well. But all of us, from, from the best to the worst guitar player, we were all beginners, right? There are no expert 14-year-old guitar players. And it was fascinating to sit in this class because everybody kind of goes in as a blank slate. And one by one, you start to see each student in the class outwardly being formed by the music that they were drawn towards. So one guy starts wearing a tie-dye t-shirt, starts wearing like bell-bottoms, and we know that he's given his life to Jimi Hendrix, right? Another guy starts wearing the acid-washed jeans and the the white shoes and the ripped-up t-shirt, and we know that he's put his faith in James Hetfield of Metallica, right? He's devoted himself to that particular artist, you could look at people and you could tell what music they were listening to by the way that it formed them and the way that they formed themselves. So it's no wonder that God gives us a book of songs because of the power of music and art. The same thing is true now. We're formed by the art we listen to. Like I wonder how many kids in Gen Z have started dyeing their hair green and talking about being goth because they started listening to Billie Eilish. Also, don't talk about being a goth until you listen to The Cure. That's me being a snob. Maybe that doesn't connect with you. Maybe that's your kid's generation. But, but let's look at another example, right? I grew up in a home where Jimmy Buffett was on constant rotation. I know almost every word to every Jimmy Buffett song. My dad has seen Jimmy Buffett in concert over 100 times. Now, that's over the course of 40 years, right? Um, but that's impressive, I've seen Jimmy Buffett a couple times in concert. Here's what I can tell you about Jimmy Buffett. Jimmy Buffett does not just produce music, he produces a culture. There's a culture that surrounds these songs. There's a a particular atmosphere that comes with that genre of music. So God gives us songs, knowing that they will form us and shape us in powerful ways. The, The clearest example is Jesus himself. The book of Psalms is perhaps the single portion of the Old Testament that Jesus quotes more than any other. It is constantly on his lips. He quotes Psalm 22, from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? The apostles frame the work of Jesus in light of the Psalms. You see this on Pentecost. Peter is quoting Psalm chapter two. This book is important. It's central. And this morning, I want to call your attention to a particular song that I hope will form us as a church and shape us 
as God's people as we live in his world. So if you have a Bible, do me a favor and turn with me in it to Psalm chapter 1. It says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so. They are like a chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. This is the word of the Lord. So the psalmist begins by saying, blessed is the man. And there's some work we've got to do around that sentence if we're going to make sense of how this song should shape us. The, the first thing that we need to say is that that term man is meant to be the inclusive mankind. So this is not just for the guys in the room. This is men, women, and children. This psalm is for all of us. Its expectations, its commandment, commandments are for each of us. But we also have to do some work around that term blessed or blessed. Because very often in our culture, we equate the idea of blessing with material prosperity. So how many times have you seen this conversation at church? How's it going with you? Man, I'm blessed. And what does that mean? My marriage is going well. My kids aren't making dumb choices. We're making our house payments. And my job is relatively stable. That's generally what's carried in that term blessed. When we say we're blessed, we're talking about things materialistically going well with us. And so we hear this promise that, that the, the one who lives this life will be blessed, and we assume that means that we will get everything that we want. Now, I want to be clear. Um, in condemning prosperity gospel preaching, sometimes uh, pastors can go overboard. And here's what I mean by that. There are clear instances in the Bible in which God's blessing on a particular person corresponds to material prosperity. Great example, Solomon, right? God blesses Solomon not just with wisdom but with wealth. The same is true for David. There are numerous people that God blesses and he does that in a financial or a material way. So it's not that that's not a component of God's blessing. It's just that there are so many other people in the Bible that we all agree are blessed that you can't measure their blessing by that standard. Let me give you a great example. The Apostle Paul, right? He wrote the majority of your New Testament. And in 2 Corinthians, he goes down a laundry list of all of the bad things that have happened to him. He's been shipwrecked. He's been beaten. He's been imprisoned. He was uh, nearly stoned to death by an angry mob. He's been bitten by poisonous snakes. The list goes on and on and on. None of that corresponds to our materialistic concept of blessing. How's it going today, Paul? How's your week been? Man, I'm blessed, says Paul, missing teeth through two black eyes. So you can't always read the idea of blessing and assume that it means material prosperity. Even better example, like the church example, Jesus. Jesus says that foxes have holes and dens. The son of man doesn't have a place to lay his head. Is Jesus not the most blessed, the most righteous to have ever lived? 
and yet his life ends in crucifixion. He's never rich by any worldly standards. He describes himself as as essentially being homeless. And so when we hear this term blessed, we can't take from it, if I do these things, then God will give me what I want. One Old Testament commentator says a better translation from blessed would be joyful or happy. Joyful is the man. Happy is the man. Happy is the person who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. God is giving to us the prescription for a life that may not be marked by material excess, but it will be marked by joy. And so what what does that life look like? Well, the psalmist goes on and says that the life of joy is one uh, in which the, the individual walks not in the counsel of the wicked, doesn't stand in the way of sinners, doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers, but instead they delight in the law of the Lord. The the psalmist says that a life of joy is one that is marked by careful consideration of whose voice you will pay attention to. Rather than walking in wicked counsel or uh, the, the scoffer's advice, we instead delight in the law of the Lord. And so it's worth asking as we think about what this song means for us, who are the counselors in your life? Like, I'm, I'm not talking about the therapist that, that you pay to sit down with, but the people that you go to for advice. What sort of counsel do you keep? Because I'm afraid that for many Christians in our current moment, we are experiencing a famine of godly counsel. Many of us choose to listen to voices that will reinforce what we want to hear rather than pointing us to biblical truth. Sometimes we even come to people who are not qualified to speak at all on the issue that they're talking about, but they say what we want to hear, and so we swallow it hook, line, and sinker. So what sort of counsel do you keep? When when your marriage is on the rocks, when things are not going well, who do you go to? to receive advice? Is it daytime talk show hosts that have doctor in front of their name but probably aren't licensed to practice medicine in any state? Is it YouTube channels with relationship advice? Is it gossip columns? Is it the friend at work that will tell you what you want to hear to follow your bliss? Or do you go to people who point you to the counsel of God's word? The psalmist says that that this is the key to a life of joy, is to be counseled by those who know the Lord and call us to obey his commandments. And there's a danger when we don't practice this. Now, don't hear me saying that the only person you should ever ask for advice has to be a Christian. Like, I am not telling you to go into the doctor's office and check with your doctor before they give you a checkup and go, have you placed your faith in Jesus If not, then you can't take my temperature, right? Like, that's not what I'm saying. But when it comes to the decisions that we make, the choices that we make, the way that we interact with one another, we have to be shaped by the commitments of Scripture. Because there are consequences. I don't know if you caught this. In in Psalm 1, there is a downward spiral. We walk in the counsel of the wicked, which causes us to stand in the way of sinners, which causes us to sit in the seat of scoffers. The longer we go down the road of not heeding godly advice, the harder it becomes to come back from that. We move from walking to standing to sitting. 
Let me give you kind of an example that sort of corresponds to this. Uh, I remember, gosh, in my early 20s, I think uh, all of my friends had watched like way too many like 50s and 60s movies where the, the hero is smoking and all my friends decided to start smoking cigarettes. Um, and I remember being like, listen, y'all are grown men. You can make whatever sort of choice you want. But there's this uh, Surgeon General's warning on the box that seems to indicate that this may not be the best choice. Uh, in the 50s, they didn't know this stuff, but now we kind of do. And many of them told me, I'm just going to smoke till I'm 25, and I'll quit then. And I said, I don't think that's how addiction works, my friend. <laughs> Like, I can't even stop drinking coffee. <laughs> and I started drinking coffee when I was 25. And without fail, all of us are in our 30s. None of them have stopped. Why? Because the longer you go down a road, the harder it is to come back. Whatever that road may be. But especially when it comes to issues that are sinful. We walk, we stand, we sit. Now, the good news is that God's grace is enough to bring us back, even from the darkest of roads. I know there are a number of people in this room who went all the way down a particular dead end, and God has brought you back, and you are a testimony to his goodness. But I know just as many of you who have gone down that road would plead with somebody who's starting to not keep going. That's what the psalmist pleads for us to do, to, to, to listen to wise and godly counsel. He gives us a better way. He says, we walk not, we stand not, we sit not in the counsel of the wicked. Instead, we delight in the law of the Lord. This is a way of referring to scripture. And on the law of the Lord, we meditate day and night. Now, maybe you hear that term meditate, and it calls to mind uh, sort of like yoga and mindfulness and all that sort of stuff. The Bible uses this terminology of meditate, but it doesn't mean the same thing that you might get from a, a mindfulness app or, or something like that. Whenever um, mindfulness or meditation is practiced in sort of an Eastern sense, it's about emptying your mind. It's about uh, being fully present in the moment and not experiencing attachment to what could happen or what has happened. It's about being purely present and empty in this moment. But whenever the Bible talks about meditation, it's not about being emptied, but being filled. It's, it's not about vacating your mind. Rather, it's about focusing your mind on specific things, namely who God is, what he's done, and what he asks of us in Scripture. That's what the psalmist is calling us to, is to meditate, to focus our minds on the law of God. And it's interesting in the Hebrew, the, the term for meditate is an onomatopoeia. Now, I'm not trying to take you to English class at 1130 on a Sunday. But an onomatopoeia is a word that sounds like a sound. So if you read comic books, you know all about this, right? Pow, zap, crash, smash. That's what this term is in the Hebrew. It's an onomatopoeia. And it's a word that is meant to sound like the grumbling noise that a bear makes. Now, I can't pronounce it, so I'm not going to try. <laughs> but that's what it's intended to sound like, is the grumbling of a bear. So what, what is the psalmist getting at here? Um, let, me, let me frame it in this way. Uh, so I moved out of my parents' house when I was 23. I lived alone until I got married to my wife at 29. 
And in that six-year window of living by myself, I developed a whole host of very strange habits that only my cat ever saw. (laughs) One of which was, uh, especially when I was working on a sermon or sort of a talk that I'd be given at the church, uh, I talked to myself a lot. And I sort of like practice the sermon points as I'm doing other things. So I'll be like doing the dishes and I'm talking about like judgment and repenting of sin. And it's like I'm preaching to the the kitchen sink. Uh, No big deal when there's nobody else in the house. A little weird the first week after our marriage when my wife sees her husband shuffling through the house talking to himself and and wonders what's going on. Why? Because I'm so, in this instance at least, I'm so focused on what I'm doing. I'm so focused on getting it right. I'm so focused on working through my language and my delivery and the way that I'm going to communicate this idea that it sort of spills out unintentionally. I end up kind of like mumbling or grumbling to myself. I end up doing exactly what the psalmist is talking about. That's the idea that's captured here is that you are so focused, so um, captured by the word of God, so devoted to working it through that it naturally just spills out even when you're not thinking about it. You're constantly turning it over in your mind. They say that this is the sort of life that leads to blessing, one that meditates, that grumbles, that mumbles through the word of God day and night. And so again, it's just worth asking, does that characterize your relationship with scripture or not? Is that the sort of devotion you have to understanding God's word? I can tell you the statistics are not on anybody's side here. This morning I was reading a a report that said that 23% of millennials are engaged in the regular reading of scripture. And 56% of millennials in America identify as Christians. Which means that less than half of the people who claim to be Christians actually spend any time reading the Bible. So clearly we're not doing this. And yet we're told that this is the life of blessing. And listen, I'm not putting myself, I realize I'm standing on the stage, I'm not putting myself on a pedestal here here because there are times where my engagement with scripture is not great. And yet you can't get around the fact that what the Bible tells us is that if we are truly captured by God's word, this will lead to a life of joy. And then scripture offers a picture for us. That the one who meditates on God's law day and night will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. This is one of those images that I wonder if it's not lost on us because of our current moment that we live in. Because even though Brandon is, I guess, technically a a suburb of Tampa, it's still kind of a concrete jungle. Many of us only have trees in our front yard for decoration. I don't even have any trees in my front yard. It's sparse. And so for us, you hear tree planted by streams of water, and it doesn't really mean that much to us. You know, maybe it's like a pretty image on like a Pinterest post or whatever, but but hearing somebody described as a tree planted by streams doesn't call to our minds all the things that it ought to or it would have for the original readers of Scripture. But there's something powerful about that image when we can understand it contextually. Um, One of my favorite places in the whole world is a section of the Appalachian Trail uh, that sort of weaves in and out of Tennessee and North Carolina called Rowan Mountain. Um, 
for probably five or six years now, my brother, uh, my, my friend Josh, and I have all hiked Rowan Mountain, uh, spent the night on the mountain. Uh, we, we've, just, we've sort of oriented every year of our life around making sure we made it to Rowan. And so when Mickey and I got married, on our honeymoon, we hiked Rowan Mountain. On our anniversary, we spent the night on the mountain. It's an important place for us. That might sound familiar to you. We named our son Rowan after Rowan Mountain. <laughs> Rowan Mountain is, uh, I'll say this, it's a difficult hike for somebody from Florida because walking upstairs is difficult for somebody from Florida. But when you get to the top, you get to what is called a bald in terms of geography. Because the mountain is so high up, it's exposed to such strong wind and such um, powerful natural elements that nothing can really grow on it except for the grass that's low to the ground. So when you get to the top of the mountain, you can see for miles. Because of the force of the winds, it keeps things from growing. It's not that there aren't trees on Rowan Mountain. There's just not many. The ones that are there are ancient. You can tell that they've been there for a long, long time and that their roots go deep. And on a busy day, under each of these trees, you can find all of the hikers gathered to get out of the sun, to get out of the wind. These ancient trees with deep roots become sources of life for other people. I wonder if that's not the image that the psalmist wants us to grasp, that when we root our lives in the commandments of God, and when we walk in wisdom, we'll experience joy, for sure. But it's not just for us. That joy That obedience causes us to be a source of refuge for people who are weary from a heartless world. You'll see that as parents. As you root your lives in God's word, your children will find your home to be a place of refuge. You'll see it for your spouses. As you root your marriage in God's word, that relationship will be a source of refuge. We are not meant to become trees just so that we can flourish, but for the life of the world. That's the life of blessing and joy that this psalm promises. Maybe you hear all this, and it's not encouraging, it's discouraging. When you think about the last week, the last month, the last year, if you're being honest, you have to admit that your life looks a lot more like the the life that is warned against in the opening verses as opposed to this life of flourishing that's described here. Maybe you feel like you've sat down in the seat of scoffers rather than delighting in the law of God. Maybe you feel like you've gone too far. You've made too many choices that you're afraid to admit. And you wonder if there's any coming back from where you are. I I think for you there is bad news and there's good news. The bad news is... More often than not, we look exactly like the people that this psalm condemns. And that's not just the people who have sinned in public and spectacular ways. That's all of us. We are a tangled mess at any given moment in our, any given moment in our lives. There are areas where we're walking in obedience, and then there's areas where we're making dumb choices. That's the bad news. None of us perfectly lives up to this psalm. But here's the good news. It's that Jesus has been obedient where we couldn't be. 
The only person who has ever perfectly lived this psalm is Jesus himself. He is the only one who has delighted perfectly in the law of the Lord. He is the only one who has totally rejected the counsel of the wicked. Only Jesus, the word made flesh, can truly say he has meditated on the law of God day and night. And it is because he is faithful where we are faithless that he has become the ultimate tree planted by streams of water, a source of refuge in a world of suffering and pain, a source of salvation for you and I who have not lived up to what God has called us to in Psalm 1. It's because he's faithful where we're faithless that we can have hope. He's not just our savior, he's also our example If we ask the question, what would it look like to perfectly live this psalm out? We don't need to look any further than Jesus because he's done it. The psalm ends on a little bit of a scary note. It ends with a warning. It says, the wicked will not stand on the day of judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The wicked will be like a chaff that the wind drives away. I wonder if you you caught the the dual images here in this passage, that the the righteous are described like a tree with roots that are deep, where the wicked are described as something that can be blown away by the wind. It's this contrast between something that's rooted and something that's rootless. Of course, in this life, it doesn't always feel that way, does it? Like, you, you can keep reading the Psalms, and more often than not, the psalmist is saying, why are the wicked prospering? Like, why are all these people that do terrible things seemingly succeeding at everything? And we don't struggle with anything different today, right? We we watch the news and we say, why do the wicked prosper? Why do people who are, are doing horrific things seem to succeed even though they're not following the commandments of God? But there's good news in this promise of God's judgment. It's that it will reveal what has always been true, but is difficult for us to see. I wonder in high school if you had to read the short story by Oscar Wilde, A Picture of Dorian Gray. I would venture to say that even if you did have to read it, you didn't read it because you just like spark noted it. But the basic premise is that there's a a wealthy young man named Dorian who wants to live a life of excess. He wants to do everything uh, to the 10th degree. But he's afraid of the consequences, the the damage and the toll that it will take on his body. And so he has a portrait of himself uh, commissioned. And then he says that, that he would sell his soul to be able to do whatever he wanted and not suffer the consequences. And, and through some mysterious exchange, all of the choices he makes throughout the rest of the story, rather than his physical body suffering the consequences, the painting suffers the consequences. Uh, So as he gives himself more and more to excess, the painting of himself becomes uglier and uglier and uglier while he stays youthful until the very end when the truth is revealed. But throughout, throughout the whole story, it seems like there's no consequences to what he's done. And yet it's at the end when what has always been true is made apparent. I wonder if this isn't a picture of the judgment of God. Above the soil, it may seem as though those who don't walk in obedience flourish, but below the soil, there are no roots. And on the day of the Lord, that will be revealed. What is rootless will be driven away, and what is rooted will stand.
Here's the good news in all of this. The psalmist tells us that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. This is where the gospel is so important because Paul tells us that Jesus became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We have not kept this psalm, none of us. No matter how squeaky clean you think your life has been, we have not perfectly kept this psalm, but Jesus has. And through faith in him, his righteousness becomes ours. We are known by God. And we can stand in his presence. With the help of the Holy Spirit, we can also become the sort of people who look more like Jesus, who live lives of joyful obedience to the God who has loved us and saved us from ourselves. That's my prayer for for you, Baylife, for us as a whole, for each of you individually. One, that you would rest in Christ's finished work, but two, that you would lean into the power of the Holy Spirit and plead, God, make this psalm true of me. Make me the sort of person who walks in joyful obedience, becomes a source of life and refuge for those who are worn out in a heartless world. Would you pray with me and we'll be done for the morning. Father in heaven, uh, we come before you calling you Father because Jesus has made it possible. Knowing that we haven't perfectly walked in, in the ways that you've called us to, but knowing that Jesus has and his righteousness is ours by faith. God, make us the sort of people who seek out wise counsel, who love your word, who delight in your law, who pursue you and your truth above all else, and who become trees that are deeply rooted, sources of refuge for those who are struggling. These things we ask in the name of Jesus, our Lord, who has perfectly kept the words that we've read this morning. And we say, amen. Amen. Baylife, go in peace. I'd love to see you in the corner and get to know you. Take care.